Well, good morning, church. Take your Bibles out with me and turn to the book of Genesis. We're going to pick it up this morning in chapter 31. If you're looking at those uh, black Bibles that look like this in the chair that you're sitting in, uh, Genesis 31 should be found on page 25 of that Bible. And as a church, it's our custom to kind of work through a book of the Bible verse by verse, chapter by chapter, to listen to what God is saying to us, how he's revealing himself to us. Um, we are utter, utterly reliant upon his spirit to open our eyes and, and to use this time together. So we, we pray that the Lord does that in our time together. Are you there at Genesis 31? All right. This side is, this side isn't. You guys there? All right. When I was a kid, my grandparents uh, took part of an effort to smuggle Bibles into countries that were closed to the gospel. And uh, one country they visited actually had laws against its citizens owning Bibles. And there were also other laws that this country had uh, that would penalize those who were caught distributing Bibles to their citizens, including the threat of prison time. But in hope of bringing God's word and the hope of the gospel to these people that did not have access to it, they went ahead and did it anyway. They packed their suitcases with a few clothing items to kind of cover up the stuff, but then they really just jam-packed, stuffed these suitcases full of Bibles. And when they flew in, they arrived in country, and the first part of their journey, things went pretty well. It looked like they were gonna, things were going to go without a, out a hitch until they arrived at a checkpoint where there were guards with guns and it was looming. So they, it, was, it was a threatening kind of picture. They, they knew it was risky. They knew if they went through this checkpoint uh, and they were caught that they could end up in, in prison. But in that moment, the risk of making sure that the people who lived in this country had access to the Bible, had access to God's word and the gospel of Jesus, seemed worth it. And so, like Elisha prayed, they asked God to blind the, the eyes of these guards, they took a deep breath, and they entered into the checkpoint. But they didn't sneak through. The guards stopped them, singled them out, and ordered my grandma and grandpa to open up their suitcases. So you can imagine their hearts were racing. They were unsure of what was going to happen next, but they did as they were told. They unzipped their suitcases, and there were stacks and stacks of Bibles in plain sight. The guards inspected each suitcase, closed them, And they turned to my grandparents and they said, you're free to go. (laughs) And they went in and they brought these Bibles to people that never had access to the word of God. I love hearing stories like that from my grandparents. I remember hearing that as a child growing up. They would bring back these pictures and put on a slideshow and they'd tell us these stories of what happened. And I loved hearing that story. I love reflecting on that because it's it's a powerful reminder of the fact that our God is sovereign over all things. And he's a refuge for his people. But you don't, you, don't have to, you don't have to be struggling Bible, you don't have to be smuggling Bibles into a closed country to need a refuge. 
You don't have to be doing something that dramatic to feel vulnerable at times in life or to feel threatened at certain points in your life. It happens all the time. We, we as Christians have the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. When the world that is opposed to God makes righteousness seem strange and sin seem normal. When the world that is opposed to God makes righteousness seem something that's harmful and sin seem like something that's good, we may end up feeling threatened for following God and not the world. What if I'm excluded because I believe the Bible? What if, what if I lose my job because I agree with what God's word says? What if I'm labeled by this world as an enemy simply for agreeing with the God of the Bible? Where's our refuge then? Or where do you look for shelter when you face disappointment? When you feel the threat of being disappointed or let down or lied to by a friend or a family member again? Where do you look for protection from the threat of loneliness? Where do you look for protection from the threat of insignificance, of being a nobody in this world, or the threat of failure? and being labeled in this world as a failure? Where do you look for refuge from temptation that wages war against your soul? The attacks of the world, the flesh, and the devil can be exhausting and relentless. So again, let me ask you, Christian, where do you look for refuge, for shelter, I ask that question because the world comes to us every day and the world offers countless counterfeit shelters. When as Christians we understand that God alone is the one and true reliable refuge for us. The question that we're going to be faced with in, these, in this decision is what, who will we trust in? Will we trust God as our refuge or will we trust ourselves? That's kind of the, that's the idea that we're going to see unfold in the text this morning in Genesis 31. So let me just give you the big idea of Genesis 31 up front. It's pretty straightforward. It's this. God is a refuge for those who trust and obey. Big idea of the text this morning. God is a refuge for those who trust and obey. I, I pray that we see this idea, this truth, as we work our way through Genesis 31. We have a lot of text to cover. We're going to break it up into two parts, uh, and we're going to, those, those two parts will be the two scenes. So let's walk through it together. Scene number one is this. If you're taking notes, scene number one is this. Trusting God means obeying God. Scene number one, trusting God means obeying God. And we're going to see, we're going to see this in verses 1 through 21 of our text. So look with me at verse 1 of chapter 31. Now Jacob heard that the sons of Laban were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's, and from what was our father's, he has gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban did not regard him with favor as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was and said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know 
that when I served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. But God did not permit him to harm me. If he said, the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock were spotted. And if he said, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in a dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see all the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Then Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Is there any portion or inheritance left for us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. Now then, whatever God has said to you, do. So Jacob arose and set his sons and his wives on camels, And he drove away all his livestock and all his property that he had gained, the livestock and the possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram, to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel stole her father's household gods. And Jacob tricked Laban the Aramean by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and arose and crossed the Euphrates, and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. We'll pause there. So in this first scene of the text, the the tension of the narrative uh, comes into focus immediately in verse 1. We're told that as Jacob, Jacob was shepherding for Laban, that that was the agreement, and as he shepherded Laban's flocks with his wages set, Jacob's flocks were growing. And because Laban was set on cursing Jacob, because Laban was set on cheating Jacob, God saw this and he made Laban's flocks shrink and Jacob's flocks grow. Laban's sons saw this and they were furious because that was their inheritance that they were seeing day after day dwindle, dwindle, dwindle as Jacob was blessed, blessed, blessed. So when Moses writes in verse 2 that Laban did not regard him with favor, I think that's putting it lightly. (laughs) Jacob and his sons were jealous of Jacob's success. And Proverbs 27.4 reminds us, wrath is cruel, anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? Jealousy makes a person so furious that they are willing to run over anyone who stands in their path in order to get revenge. That seems, what, that seems to be what's going on in the sons of Laban, including in Laban's heart as well, as they are jealous of Jacob's prosperity. Needless to say, Jacob's in trouble. In verse 3, God then comes to Jacob, and, J- and God commands Jacob 
to return to the land of your fathers. He had been in uh, Padan Aram, where Laban was. It's about 500 miles northeast of the promised land. And now he says, it's time to go home. It's time to go back to the promised land. And he's commanded to do that. But we have to remember that leaving Laban would not be easy. Leaving Laban would be risky. Laban has proven over and over and over that he's a liar, that he is a schemer, that he is clingy, he is manipulative, and he is willing to take what he wants by force in order to get it. So the idea of leaving Laban is risky. But it's interesting, Rachel and Leah's response, they were, at, they were in conflict in chapter 30. Now they're in agreement in chapter 31. And their response to Jacob in verses 14 through 16 show us, they give us a sneak peek. And we're kind of wondering how did they feel about their dad? But verses 14 through 16 gives us a picture of how miserable it was to live with their father Laban. You know, we might assume that it would be hard for, for them to leave their family home, the only home that they had known, and go to a country that they'd never seen before. But in verse 15, the daughters point out to, to Jacob, are we not regarded by him, that's their father, are we not regarded by him as foreigners? For he has sold us, and he has indeed devoured our money. Again, you see Laban's greed, you see Laban's uh, deceit, you see his, his wickedness. Laban's treatment of his daughters over the years left them angry. It left them feeling hurt. It, it left them ready to leave home, anxious to leave home. I think for the fathers who are here today, it's a sobering reminder of our influence and our God-given responsibility. What we do or don't do as fathers leaves an impact, a mark, whether for good or for ill, on our kids. Laban's deceit and Laban's zeal and his obsession with gaining more and more wealth meant that his daughters were neglected to the point of feeling like they were foreigners to their dad. In their own home, they felt like they were foreigners in their own home. Instead of providing an environment that would help his daughters to flourish, Laban neglected them for his selfish, greedy ends. In contrast to Laban, Paul in Ephesians 6.4 gives us a, a clear vision, a, 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 a picture of what a dad is called to as a Christian father. Paul writes, fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in the training or discipline and instruction of the Lord. A single verse gives us a very clear vision of what we are called to as fathers. Instead of discouraging or exasperating our kids with harshness, a father is called to bring up his children, to train them. You think of an Olympic athlete who's training for the Olympics, right? This is, this is, this is, you're involved. So a dad is to train their kids, to discipline their kids with the goal of Christian maturity, that they might know God and be mature in Christ. So training and discipline that Paul talks about in Ephesians 6 verse 4 means knowing our kids. It means 
Being involved, it means spending time encouraging, correcting, and teaching our kids. Well, with a father like Laban, Rachel, Jacob, and Leah all know that it's risky to leave. What would he do if he caught them leaving? And yet God commanded Jacob, you gotta leave, it's time to go. I think Jacob was being confronted with a truth that his grandfather Abraham had to face earlier. That is this, faith is more than just saying, I believe. Faith is more than just saying, that's true. It starts there, but faith is more than that. Faith, biblical faith, is trust. And trusting God means obeying God. Banking our life on the truthfulness of his word such that we obey what he says. So, risky leaving Laban, where would Jacob and his Family find the courage to obey, to step out in obedience. Where do they find the courage? Well, I think that Jacob is beginning to see God's providence that he was formerly blind to. As he talks with Rachel and Leah, we see that he is now seeing the faithfulness of God that he once doubted. You remember when Jacob and and Laban set up the terms of his wages, Jacob initially thought that the flocks that produced the speckled and spotted and black offspring that were going to be his wages, he initially thought that that those, those flocks were producing speckled and spotted and black offspring because of his clever plan that we saw at the end of chapter 30 when he's setting up these speckled and spotted trees by the watering troughs. But... After six years of working for Laban, he realizes that it wasn't his clever plan. It was God. God had done this. Verse five, the God of my father has been with me. Or verse seven, Laban cheated me and changed my wages 10 times, but God did not permit him to harm me. Verse nine, God has taken away the livestock of your father and given them to me. It wasn't his clever plan. It wasn't his superstitious acts. It was God. And then to seal the deal in verse 13, God, Jacob is finally connecting the dots where 20 years ago in chapter 28, verse 15, God had promised Jacob, behold, I am with you. And will keep you. I will protect you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Jacob is finally putting the dots together and seeing he was with me. He has been protecting me. He is faithful. He's seeing what he didn't see before. Friends, when you read about all the dysfunction and mess and conflict in Genesis, as, as we look at this Jacob narrative, do you ever get tired? I was talking to Jason this week. Jason's like, man, I'm just, I'm just sick and tired of all this dysfunction in, in the Jacob part of, this, of Genesis. And I'm like, I think a lot of us are like Jason. We're just, we're just tired. of. Come on. We're, everything's a mess. We, we almost become weary as the reader 
seeing this mess. But life can be like that sometimes. One mess, one conflict, one trial after another for a long time. And, and, and after a while, it can leave us wondering, where is God in all of this? It can, it can leave us trying and grasping to make sense of things, but we can't. I remember being in Istanbul, Turkey, and watching a, a woman weave a Turkish rug, this beautiful Turkish rug. And if you look at the top of the rug that, that she was weaving, you see the, the intricate, beautiful pattern of colors and design coming together that would be this Turkish rug in the end. But if you go to the other side of the Turkish rug, the bottom, under the loom, you would see just a mess of knots and loose threads and nothing makes, seems to make sense. There's no pattern under the underside of, of the rug. And I remember thinking that our our perspective is a lot like that. Our perspective as created human beings is limited. Left to ourselves, we see life under the loom. We look up and we see knots and threads and a mess. We don't have the divine perspective of above the loom, above the sun. But Ecclesiastes 3.11 promises this. God has made everything beautiful in its time. Everything, not just some things, not just the good things of life, even the painful, gut-wrenching things in, his, in our life. He's weaving together and making beautiful in its time. In his providence, God is weaving history together to make it beautiful. So when Jacob came initially 20 years ago to Padam, Padan Aram, he was alone, he was broke and penniless. He was on the run for his life. And those 20 years of living with Laban and working for him had been hard. It had been a trial. Laban had changed his wages 10 times in an effort to cheat him, lied to him, deceived him, tricked him. But in all the pain and confusion and seeing knots and threads and a mess, God was at work. Such that when he left Padan Aram, he left not alone, but with a family. Not penniless, but with sheep and sheep and goats and servants and camels and donkeys. No longer running for his life, but knowing the protection of God. He was seeing what he was once blind to. Friends, when the psalmist in Psalm 73 struggled with envy, he, he looked at the wicked and they were prospering and the righteous were suffering. And, and he was like, this doesn't make sense to me. And in Psalm 73, verses 16 and 17, he says, when I thought how to understand this, why are the wicked prospering? Why are the righteous suffering? When I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. This doesn't make sense. All I see are knots and threads and a mess. Until he says, verse 17, I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Came into the sanctuary of God, gathered with the people of God, heard the word of God, and he got perspective. Friends, if we are to see God's providence in our life, if we are to see God's faithfulness in our life, we need the calibrating perspective of God's word on a daily basis. We need the calibrating perspective of God's word every Sunday. We need to gather like we are each Sunday and throughout the week because we need the encouragement of other Christians to help us to see 
the providence of God, the faithfulness of God that sometimes we're just blind to. Because as we see God at work, it strengthens us and it emboldens us to step out in obedience, even as Jacob stepped out in obedience, risking his life to go to Canaan as God commanded him to. So then in the, in the end of the section, this is what we see Jacob doing. They, they pack up their stuff and they head south to the promised land. But before they leave, we're told in verse 19 that Rachel stole her father's household gods. Things are going well. And then, and then that? We're like, what? Why does she do that? Scene number two. God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Scene number two, God is a shield to those who take refuge in him. This is the last point, verses 22 through 55. All right, let's look at verse 22 together. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And Laban overtook Jacob. Now Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And Laban said to Jacob, what have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house. But why did you steal my gods? Let's pause there. Laban's upset for a number of reasons. And so he, he, when he hears that Jacob and his family and all the livestock that he had gained from Laban had left, he's furious. He rallies the troops and he hunts Jacob down. And I say hunts Jacob down because the Hebrew word for pursued that you see there uh, in verse 23 is a Hebrew word that describes a trailing army with hostile intentions. He's not coming out to have a picnic with Jacob. We're meant to picture this as a hostile army coming out to capture Jacob because he is ticked. So once again, Jacob is at risk. But even before Laban is able to catch up with Jacob, God shows up. Jacob doesn't do anything. God in his mercy shows up to Laban in a dream and he says, don't you dare mess with Jacob. Don't you lay a finger on my Jacob. You lay a finger on him, you're going to answer to me. And Laban gets the point. So when Laban catches up, rather than attacking, he acts like a victim. Oh, 
He acts like a wounded father in verse 27. Why didn't you tell me that you were leaving? I mean, I wanted to send you away with mirth and songs. I wanted to throw you a party and give you gifts. And everyone there who knew Laban was thinking, give me a break, Laban. We know you. We know your character. What a joke. You weren't coming out to throw a party. You are coming out with your military. And then in verse 30, at the end of verse 30, Jacob asks, why did you steal my gods? Ah, now we see why Laban's agitated. So we see the answer in verse 31. Jacob answered and said to Laban, why did you leave? Because I was afraid, for I thought that you would take your daughters from me by force. Anyone with whom you find your gods shall not live. In the presence of our kinsmen, point out what I have taken that is yours and take it. Now, Jacob did not know that Rachel had stolen them. So Laban went into Jacob's tent and into Leah's tent and into the tent of the two female servants, but did not find them. And he went out of Leah's tent and entered Rachel's. Now, Rachel had taken the household gods and put them in the camel saddle and sat on them. Laban felt all about the tent, but did not find them. And she said to her father, let not my Lord be angry that I cannot rise before you for the way of women is upon me. So he searched, but did not find the household gods. Now, Again, the the tension is set right in verse 1. The tension ratchets up right in this this section. Because we as the reader, we know Rachel stole the household gods of Laban. And Jacob had no idea. As far as he knows, the household gods were just misplaced. They're somewhere else in, in Laban's house. So he thinks no one took the gods. I didn't take them. So when, when, when Laban comes out and he makes this accusation, Jacob's just irritated. And he says, go ahead. Dig through my tents. Have a look. In fact, if you find the idols, it'll be the death penalty for anyone who stole them. Tension ratches it up. And so Moses moves slowly in the narrative. First, Laban goes into Jacob's tent, looks for the household gods. Then he goes into Leah's tent, looks for the household gods. Then he goes into the tent of the two servants and looks for the household gods. Can't find them. But as the reader, we know where they're at. So when he enters Rachel's tent in verse 33, we are on the edge of our seats because we know Rachel has Laban's household gods. And we're asking, will this end in the death penalty for Rachel? So imagine the scene. Laban is, Laban's not just like meandering. Laban is desperately looking for his gods. He is ransacking each of these tents. He's, I mean, I'm picturing clothes going everywhere. He's looking every, every inch of these tents, but he never finds them. Can't find his gods. Why? Well, because Rachel had put them, we're told, in the camel's saddle and she had sat on them. Now, why did Rachel take, 
Why did she steal the household gods of Laban in the first place? Was it because she wanted to pawn off whatever precious gold or silver might have been in these household gods? You know, we're told that Laban devoured her wealth. So is this her way of, you know, salvaging some money and she'll pawn off these gods for some money? Or was it, did she take these gods as a good luck charm because she was a little nervous about leaving her home? Or did she take these household gods just to spite her father? who had mistreated her all these years. Well, as you read through a text like this and you ask a question like this, it's a fair question, but if you read it carefully, Moses never answers that question. Moses never tells us why Rachel stole the household gods because that's not what Moses wants us to ask. It's not what Moses wants us to see in the text. Moses wants us to see something else. So it's a fair question, but we shouldn't speculate. We should, stay in the, we should stay on the line that Moses is walking down. And what Moses wants us to see in this text is a contrast between the gods of Laban with the one true God, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Yahweh. So it, it's, I, I imagine Moses smiling when he writes this section because Laban's gods are lost. Poor little guys. They can't be found. They can't help themselves. They can't cry out, I'm over here, Laban. But while Laban is desperately searching for his gods, which he can't find, and if you can't find your gods, you probably need a new god, right? So Laban is desperately searching for his lost gods, but while he's desperately looking for his lost gods that can't help themselves or help Laban, Yahweh, the one true God, the God of the Bible, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, stops Laban in his tracks. He protects Jacob, and all throughout Genesis, we're going to see God ordering and ruling and having sovereignty over every detail in history. So where are Laban's gods then? Well, the text tells us that Rachel is sitting on them. And in verse 35, she tells Laban, listen, don't be offended, but I can't arise before you for the way of women is upon me. Now listen, that means that she's having her period. So sitting on Laban's gods is Moses saying that she's making a mockery of these false gods. She is literally defiling the gods of Laban. And they can't do anything about it because they're powerless. Compared to the one true God of the Bible, the idols of this world are worth about as much as a sanitary napkin. Moses writes vividly, doesn't he? An idol can be lots of things. An idol, if you go, uh, you know, if we go to um, Thailand, where our, 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 some of our friends are at, you will not find a block in Bangkok, Thailand, where there's not a huge Buddha statue where people are bowing down. And, and much of the world operates that way, where idols are literally statues that people offer incense to, put their hope in, and they bow down to. But an idol can also be money, or sex, or power, or success. 
An idol or a false god can be anything that we love or trust more than God. Something that we can't live without. Something that we are willing to break the rules to get. I wonder what that would be for you. What are you, if you pause this afternoon and just reflect and pray and consider and talk about this, what is it that you are prone to love or trust more than God? What is it that you look to to deliver something that only God can deliver? Who or what do you trust other than God? The appeal of a counterfeit God is that it promises us good, but it lets us feel like we're still in control. You know, the idol can't talk back. We carry the idol wherever we want. It gives us the semblance of promising us good, but we, we're, we're still the ones in control. In contrast, the God of the Bible is powerful, is holy, is awesome, and he will not be domesticated. We don't tell God what to do. We don't barter with God. He's God. Either we trust him and do what he says, or we don't know him as God. And when we see the God of the Bible who's free like this, who won't be domesticated, and he wants to have a relationship with us, but but he We don't set the terms of this relationship. He does. It makes us a little nervous because we like the idea of retaining some sense of control. That's the appeal of an idol. But no matter how appealing an idol or a counterfeit god is, it is powerless. It is as powerless as the gods that Rachel was sitting on. Anything that we trust in other than God will let you down. It will disappoint you. There are not many paths to God. There are not different uh, expressions of God. There is one true God. Every other God is a false God. There's one true God and his name is Jesus. There's one true God and he's the God of the Bible. He is Yahweh. It's the God that we see, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And if we trust anything other than him, we will be disappointed because they're powerless. They cannot save. They cannot help. Just take money, for example. We like to trust in money as a counterfeit God. Proverbs 18.11 says, a rich man's wealth is his strong city. And like a high wall in his imagination. So wealth can mean safety, but the safety that money provides is temporary. That's why the proverb says it's, it's a wall, it's a strong city in his imagination. Because true security is found not in the temporary or fleeting nature of wealth. You have it one day, it's gone the next. True security is found in a God who rules over every stock market, every job, every season of life. I think the point of part of what we're seeing here for us is we are to flee from idolatry and we are to trust God alone. Look at verse 36. Then Jacob became angry and berated Laban. Jacob said to Laban, 
What is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set up before your, my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried and I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beast I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me and the night, the cold by night and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house. I served you 14 years. 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock. And you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Then Laban answered and said to Jacob, uh, uh, the daughters are my daughters, the children are my children, the flocks are my flocks, and all that you see is mine. But what can I do this day for these my daughters and for their children for whom they have born? Come now, let, let us make a covenant, you and I, and let it be a witness between you and me. So Jacob took a stone and set it up as a pillar. And Jacob said to the kinsmen, gather stones. They took stones and made a heap, and they ate there by the heap. Laban called it Jagar Sehadutha, but Jacob called it Galid. You'll notice the footnote there. One is Aramaic, one is Hebrew. This is, uh, this is two different cities, two different languages, right? Verse 48. Laban said, this heap is a witness between you and me today. Therefore, he named it Galid and Mizpah. For he said, the Lord watch between you and me when we are out of one another's sight. If you oppress my daughters or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no one is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Then Laban said to Jacob, see this heap and the pillar, which I have set between you and me. This heap is a witness and the pillar is a witness that I will not pass over this heap to you and you will not pass over this heap and this pillar to me to do harm. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor and the God of their father judge between us. So Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. And Jacob offered a sacrifice in the hill country and called his kinsmen to eat bread. They ate bread and spent the night in the hill country. And early in the morning, Laban arose and kissed his grandchildren and his daughters and blessed them. Then Laban departed and returned home. So Laban, after Laban ransacked each of Jacob's tents and came up empty-handed, couldn't find the household gods, Jacob had had about enough. I think, you, I think when you see him kind of berate Laban, you're seeing 20 years of frustration, 20 years of being wronged and deceived and tricked by Laban, boiling over. The text says, Jacob became angry and he berated Laban. From verses 36 to verse 42. What's my offense? Where I steal from you? Let's have court. Right here, we got our kinsmen as our witnesses. We got God as our judge. Let's see who wronged who. And then he reviews 20 years of Laban's mistreatment, ending in verse 42. He says, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. In other words, if God was not 
here, if he was not on my side, you would have run me out of town. Now, Jacob admitted that he had left town without telling Laban because of fear. He was afraid that Laban would take his daughters by force. But seeing how God was faithful to protect him, seeing God's providence, Jacob starts to fear God more than he fears man. So in this text, God is referred to as the fear, capital F, the fear of Isaac. So in other words, the God, this awesome God, whom Isaac had come to fear and love, was now becoming the fear of Jacob. Jacob's God. And the fear of God did not leave Jacob insecure. When he learned that God, that this awesome God, who when he enters the room, makes the knees of those who see him and hear him tremble, when he learned that that God was on his side, oh my goodness, it put steel in his spine. It made Jacob bold and it made Jacob confident. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord, one has strong confidence and his children will have a refuge. So after kind of Revisiting 20 years of mistreatment, Laban realizes he can't smooth talk or weasel his way out of this one. The evidence was overwhelming and proved that he was in the wrong. So instead of harming Jacob, he, he salvages things by making a covenant with him. And then he leaves in the end at peace with Jacob. But don't, don't misread this. The covenant of Mizpah is not a covenant between friends. This is not a romantic thing. This is not a friendship thing. This is the covenant of Mizpah is between enemies. They don't trust each other. The covenant of Mizpah is a non-aggression pact. In other words, they're saying to each other, here's the line, you stay over there, I'll stay over here. You don't mess with me, I won't mess with you. And they leave. And remember, Jacob came to Padan Aram 20 years ago with nothing. Nothing. On the run for his life with nothing but a staff. 20 years later, he leaves with a family. He leaves with sheep and goats and servants and camels and donkeys. And now on his way back to the promised land with the assurance that God is with him. Just as God had promised to be with him, to protect him and to bring him all the way home. God is faithful, church. God keeps his promises. So the God who visited Laban in the night and frightened Laban, don't mess with Jacob. He frightened Jacob, Laban to the point of leaving Jacob alone. That God that frightened Laban is the same God who was a refuge for Jacob. The point is that Jacob was safe because he came to understand that God was on his side. Laban was in danger because God was opposed to him. Jacob was safe because God was on his side. Laban was in danger because God was opposed to him. Friends, is God on your side? Is God on your side? 
If you think that God is on your side because you're a pretty good person, you're wrong. Every time that Jacob tried to be good enough, every time that he tried to do it himself, every time he tried to perform, it only made things worse. That's what we keep seeing with Jacob. And we know from James 4, 6 that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. It took a while. He had to spend 20 years serving Laban, but those years were not wasted. God used the hardship that he was facing to make Jacob a type of person who could finally receive the grace of God. Stop trying to do this yourself, Jacob, and receive the grace of God. Tomorrow, our nation commemorates the emancipation of enslaved African Americans. Though enacted in 1863 through Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation, uh, there was a number of slaves in the South that, in places such as Galveston, Texas, who didn't experience freedom until June 19, 1865, when proclamation of freedom was enforced. This freedom from slavery in American history is worth firing up the grill and celebrating. The freedom that Jacob experienced coming out from underneath Laban is worth celebrating. But friends, there is an even greater freedom that we as Christians declare today. As Jacob and Laban Laban went to court in Genesis 31 with evidence and witnesses and a judge trying to determine who wronged who and who's in the right, we too find ourselves in God's courtroom. Every one of us. Satan is the great accuser who points out all the wrong that we have done and the evidence against us is our sin. And it does no good to claim that we're good. I'm a good person. Because the evidence against us proves that we are guilty. We have all sinned. We have all fallen short of the glory of God. And as our judge, God will not forgive sin by sweeping it under the carpet and winking his eye and saying, I'm feeling pretty merciful today. Because if he sweeps sin under the carpet without punishing sin, he ceases to be a good judge. The wages of sin, your sin and mine, is death. And as a good judge, God will punish every one of our sins. The first readers of Genesis, the Israelites, would remember their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. I imagine them wandering around the wilderness reading this account that Moses had written for them. Those Israelites would have remembered the night of their departure from Egypt, the night that the destroyer came through Egypt to kill the firstborn of everyone in Egypt, except the destroyer would pass over every household that had the blood of the lamb on their doorpost. That Passover was a, a signpost in the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus, who is our Passover lamb. Jesus lived a perfect life to die the death that we deserve because of our sin. On the cross, Jesus bore the penalty of sin for all people who would turn from their sin and trust in him alone. So as our Passover lamb, 
Jesus is our refuge, our shelter, our protector from the righteous wrath of God. This is why every other God, every other religion is a dead end because they don't deal with sin like Jesus does. Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me because Jesus alone dealt with sin on the cross so that God could both forgive sin and simultaneously uphold his righteous standard. So let me ask again, is God on your side? God's not on your side because of your performance, because you've been a good person, It doesn't happen because of our performance. It happens, God comes to be on our side only because of Jesus and what you do with him. Paul writes this in Romans 8. If God is for us, hear the echo? God is on my side. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously, freely, Give us all things. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who's at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. So in this courtroom of God's justice, we have the accuser, you have God the judge, but But the judge is also the one who himself came down from his seat, gave his life, died, and rose on the third day. So that when when Paul asks, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ has the right to condemn us, but because he took the condemnation for us, if you trust in him, you will not be condemned, you will be accepted. That's good news, friends. But it's not enough to just say, I believe, Nor is it enough to just hear that good news and say, that's true. You must make a decision. You must choose. Will I trust myself to be good enough before a holy God who will punish all sin? Or will I trust Jesus? You have to choose. Trust yourself, you'll find God opposed to you on the day of judgment. Trust Jesus you'll find God to be on your side. So where do you look for safety? Where do you look for refuge, shelter? I pray that each of us here this morning turns from our self-reliance, turns from our sin, and that we come to Jesus, that we trust him completely, joyfully, and without reservation. Because God is a refuge to those who trust him and obey him. Let's pray.